By now, some listeners to this podcast would have dismissed the Bible as a book filled with Bronze Age myths and a narrow, unreconstructed, often poisonous worldview. Others will appreciate the big picture that God needs a unified people, all following the same rules of play. Then there are some who high-five the Bible for being completely true, even as the gulf between its pages and the attitudes of the wider West continue to grow apart. Happily, there's room for everyone, and if nothing else, I hope you do appreciate that others, myself included, find the book utterly fascinating. It has endured for millennia, so there has to be something about it that sticks with people, even if that thing is a priest rendered unfit for work because he has touched a centipede or involuntarily ejaculated during the night. My name is Chaz Bayfield, and this is Holy Bible, episode 32, The Blasphemer. If this is your first ever episode of Holy Bible, welcome. To manage your expectations, Holy Bible is me talking for around 20 minutes each episode, taking you chronologically through the Bible, not in a theological way, more as a day tripper. Think of us as Bible tourists. While others study and preach, we're here for the views and the interesting stories. Your guide is an advertising creative director, me, and regardless of its sometimes less than woke attitudes, I remain a huge fan. For a book this old, it's surprisingly modern and can be credited for some of the earliest writings on social justice, equality and, yes, feminism. We're currently on book three of the Bible, the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is the Bible's rule book, which also makes it one of its least page-turning and possibly least read books. But there's still a lot to love, such as the thought of a holy man having to cancel his plans for the rest of the day because he accidentally touched a small bug. The entirety of the book of Leviticus is a series of rules dictated by God, and a constant refrain at the start of each chapter is, The Lord said to Moses. Readers aren't told where Moses is when he receives these messages, but he's been down from the mountain for a while now, and the suggestion is that he is somewhere within the tabernacle compound. In one of these typically one-way conversations, God tells Moses that Aaron and his sons must treat the people's offerings with respect. If they don't, they make a mockery out of the process and drag God's name through the dirt. If any of their descendants dares to serve him while they are ceremonially unclean, they need to be cut off from Israel. Their infraction takes them from ministering in the tabernacle to God no longer recognising them. Priests are no less likely to be affected by the diseases and afflictions that are suffered by the rest of the population, and they have a duty of care to ensure that they don't bring their sickness or uncleanness to work with them. That means that skin diseases and bodily discharges exclude a priest from work. Other actions that get in the way of his duties include touching anything that is seen as ceremonially unclean. That means corpses, men who have ejaculated anywhere that isn't inside a woman, crawling animals such as snakes or centipedes, and any person whose medical condition or other circumstances makes them someone to avoid. Priests who tick any of these boxes remain unclean until evening, at which point they must wash before they can eat any of the offerings that make up the priest's share. Come sundown, excluded priests can enjoy their meal, but if they eat the Old Testament equivalent of roadkill, meat from animals that have been savaged by predators, they will remain unfit to serve at the tabernacle. God emphasises that these men who perform his services need to be beyond reproach, and that death will meet anyone who treats the tabernacle service with contempt. 
Given what has only recently happened to Nadab and Abihu, this is seen as no empty promise. The food set aside for priests may also be enjoyed by their family and any slaves who they own. However, other guests may not join in. If the priest's daughter marries a man who isn't a priest, she is denied any share of the food. This is not necessarily because she is a disappointment to her family, but because she has joined a new family that are not priests and who don't have the same privileges. Only if she is widowed or divorced or has no children and returns to live with her parents can she be invited back to the table. Women whose husbands have died or divorced them are often unable to fend for themselves financially, which is why they return to their parents' home for survival. As far as the priest's food, no one else can eat these special meals, and if anyone tries to do this, they need to replace what they have eaten and add a fifth to it. Sharing God's food with a general hoi polloi is seen as desecration. It brings guilt on the priesthood, and compensation is essential to make the problem go away. Presenting the correct animals to God is of paramount importance, and so he tells Moses to remind Aaron and his sons of the high-grade livestock that is expected at the tabernacle. God reminds Moses that anyone in Israel who is presenting an animal at the tabernacle, either to solemnise a vow or as a voluntary free will offering, needs to make sure that the beast is male and has nothing wrong with it. God lists the defects that he doesn't want to see in these cattle, sheep and goats. They can't be blind, injured or maimed. They can have neither warts, nor festering or running sores, nor can their testicles be bruised, crushed, torn or cut. The four conditions of animal testicles are not accidents. These are the ways the ancients castrate their animals. Israelites are forbidden to offer up animals with these defects, nor may the priests accept such animals from foreign converts. However, deformed or stunted creatures may be given as a free will offering, as this is the only offering that isn't obligated by law, so it's really up to the giver to decide what to give. No animals under eight days old may be presented at the tabernacle, nor can an animal and its young be slaughtered on the same day. This appears to be for no other reason than to be humane. God then reminds Moses that any thank-offering sacrifices must be consumed on the day they are killed, before throwing in a reminder that everyone should stick to his orders. They shouldn't drag his name through the dirt, as he needs to be seen as holy by the rest of Israel. After all, he is the one who makes them holy, he says, and he underlines the fact that he rescued his people from Egypt purely so that he could be their God. For the fourth time, God reminds Moses to keep one day a week free from work. This clearly makes it one of the most important rules in the Old Testament. The Sabbath is listed in Leviticus as one of the festivals which all Israelites must observe. It may not seem much of a festival, as it takes place every week and only lasts 24 hours, but its frequency makes it no less important. According to the book of Genesis, God creates the world in six days, and spends the seventh enjoying a well-earned rest. It is in honour of this quiet time that Jews throughout the world keep Saturdays free, while Christians do their best to keep Sunday special. Unsurprisingly, the Sabbath, or Shabbat as it is known to Jews, has an ultra-chilled-out vibe. Very little goes on during Shabbat, aside from resting, praying and meeting friends and family. The word sabbatical, meaning a period of time away from work, comes from the word Sabbath. This beautifully relaxed day is not just to remember God's incredible creative achievement. There's no record of a Sabbath being kept in Egypt. The Sabbath comes into existence in the Sinai wilderness as a combined celebration of the creation and the release of the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. 
Not only that, do you see this weekly day of calm, peace and idleness as a foretaste of the state of things to come, when the divine rescuer, who they refer to as the Messiah, returns? Nowadays, the Sabbath is an almost exclusively Jewish event, and many Jews spend some of their Saturday in a synagogue. Officially, Jewish Shabbat begins around 18 minutes before sunset on Friday, and lasts until three stars are clearly visible in the night sky on Saturday evening. Jews have a list of 39 kinds of work that may not be carried out on the Sabbath, and any number of rituals which the faithful must adhere to in order to keep the faith. The Sabbath may be a purely Jewish concept, but unlike the Jews, most Christians make Sunday their official day of rest. They are less focused on rituals during their weekly holy day, though many attend a church service and choose not to work or do unnecessary shopping. Central to Jewish life in Moses' day are the major annual celebrations, all of which come with their own rules and regulations. Sabbath may be considered a festival, but the other major days in Israel's calendar are annual ones. Passover, first fruits, weeks, trumpets, atonement and tabernacles, or, to give them their contemporary Jewish names, Pesach, Bukurim, Shavuot, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur and Sukkot. Passover has already been described in some detail in the book of Exodus, and the basic ground rules are given again here in Leviticus. The festival begins at sundown on the same date every year. This equates to a different date on non-Jewish calendars, but usually falls in either March or April. The following day marks the festival of unleavened bread, the beginning of a seven-day period where the Israelites must eat bread baked without yeast and sacrifice bulls, rams and lambs. At the end of the seven days, the festival is wrapped up with a special ceremony which Leviticus describes as a sacred assembly, and no one may do any work on either of the days that bookend the event. Less a festival and more a ceremony, God describes what he calls the first fruits. This is where the people are duty-bound to bring him the first sheaf of grain from the first harvest that is gathered in when they arrive in the promised land. On the day after the first Sabbath that marks a day of rest after the harvest, the priest must wave the sheaf at God in order for it to be accepted, the unwritten suggestion being that he will bless the rest of the harvest. To solemnise the event, an unblemished year-old lamb needs to be offered up as a burnt offering, along with seven pounds of flour mixed with olive oil, which should also be thrown on the altar along with one and three-quarter pints of wine. None of the harvest may be enjoyed by the Israelites until the first of the produce has been offered to God, and God makes it clear that this proto-Thanksgiving festival needs to happen every year after the first crops are harvested. Seven weeks and a day after the first fruit Sabbath comes the Festival of Weeks, which is known to Christians by its Greek name Pentecost. While first fruit celebrates the barley harvest, weeks coincides with the wheat harvest. An offering must be made from the first of the grain to be brought in from the fields. This takes the form of two loaves, made from seven pounds of the best flour and yeast, which are waved at God. Alongside this, seven one-year-old male lambs, one young bull, and a couple of rams are to be offered up as burnt offerings. It appears that these extra rituals sit alongside the regular daily sacrifices made by the Israelites at the tabernacle. To counteract the sins of the people, a goat is sacrificed, then two lambs are waved at God, before being added to the loaves to create a meal for the priest. Pentecost is a double Sabbath. It's a Sunday, but no work may be carried out, and there should be a special ceremony where the entire nation commemorates the day. In an age before shops and packaged food, harvests are vitally important, and it's no wonder that honouring God is seen as central to their success.
To that end, God reminds Moses that some of the crop needs to be left for the poor and the rootless who have no other access to food. He then explains the procedure for the Festival of Trumpets, which takes place in late September or early October, and is a Sabbath day. Food should be offered to God, the people should gather together, and the day is marked by the trumpet blasts, which give the festival its name. These trumpets are made from ram's horns and mark the Jewish New Year, or Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is also the start of the month that sees both the Day of Atonement and the Festival of Tabernacles. The Israelites are commanded to observe the Day of Atonement, which also falls in September or October. Rules are particularly strict about this festival, and Moses is warned three times by God that working on this day, or failing to fast, is forbidden. Anyone who thinks they are above the law will be cut off from the entire community, God says, and their lives will be destroyed. Finally, God explains the rules around Sukkot, also known as the Festival of Tabernacles. This too falls in either September or October, which appears to be a hugely busy period for Israel. Like Passover, Tabernacles involves a seven-day period of sacrifices, bookended with a Sabbath on which offerings of food are made to God, and there is another sacred assembly. What marks out Tabernacles from other festivals is that all those born to an Israelite tribe must make themselves shelters out of tree branches and live in them for a week, a kind of sacred camping holiday. The reason God gives for this is so that future generations will be reminded that their ancestors had to live in makeshift homes whilst they were in the Sinai wilderness on their way from Egypt to Canaan. Dramatically, the announcement of the laws and festival regulations is interrupted by someone breaking one of God's rules with catastrophic consequences. In only the second action sequence in the entire book of Leviticus, a fight between two men breaks out in the Israelite camp. Before this happens, God explains that the candlestick in the tabernacle must be kept alight by Aaron from evening until morning using the purest kind of olive oil as fuel. Aaron must continuously tend the lampstand during his nighttime vigil, and God specifies that this is a ritual that must be continued throughout the ages. Twelve large loaves of bread are to be baked, each using seven pounds of flour, and should be placed in two piles on the golden table that sits in the holy place in the tabernacle. As with all twelves in the Bible, these loaves are believed to represent the twelve tribes of Israel, and are set aside for God to mark his promise to look after the people. Next to each pile is set some pure incense, so that God has a gift too, as the loaves themselves are to be eaten by Aaron. The bread, which is known as the bread of the presence, or showbread, is to be laid out every Sabbath, and must be eaten by Aaron and his sons within the tabernacle compound, as it is considered holy food. Bible experts believe that each loaf is around ten handbreadths long, five wide, and one finger high. It is now that Leviticus suddenly bursts into action for the first time since Abihu and Nadab are struck dead by God. Two men get involved in a fight. One has a Hebrew mother and an Egyptian father, and in the heat of the moment he uses God's name as a curse. The dispute is in public, so there are witnesses, and as a result the man is placed in custody until the people are sure what God's will is. The verdict is swift. According to Leviticus, Moses is told by God to take the man outside the camp and to bring with him all those who heard him take God's name in vain. The witnesses are to place their hands on the man's head while the rest of the Israelites batter him to death with rocks. Moses is then to tell the Israelites that anyone who uses the name of God blasphemously will be killed. 
So holy is God's name that misuse of it is seen as no less a felony as murder, regardless of whether the blasphemer is an Israelite or from another culture. God uses the event as a teachable moment and recaps a number of crimes and their punishments already spelled out earlier in the book. A murderer should be put to death, while someone who kills another person's animal should lose one of their own. Anyone who deliberately injures someone should suffer the same injury themselves, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Regardless of whether someone is a convert to Israel's religion or was born into it, the same rules apply, God tells them. Once Moses has told the Israelites God's decision on the matter, the blasphemer is taken into the desert and killed. Old Testament scholars wonder if Moses overreacts. After all, God doesn't strike the blasphemer down immediately, and Moses never mentions blasphemy again. The elephant in the room is that none of Israel's future neighbours will be God-fearers, so if Israelites try to kill them all for blasphemy, then what goes around will inevitably come around, leaving God's people at risk of stonings for not worshipping Dagon, Molech, Baal and other pagan deities when they arrive in the Promised Land. Drastic though the punishment may seem, the message is clear. God needs his people to follow his rules if they are to make it to Canaan, and so discipline is paramount. That way, no one is left in any doubt that these are God's rules, and anyone who breaks them does so at their own risk. So, finally a bit of action in one of the Bible's most static books. We're fast approaching the end of Season 3, which might as well be renamed The Rules. The priests and the people now know God's expectations for their interpersonal behaviour and how they should worship him appropriately. To underline the point that God is in charge, a man who used his name as a curse word has just been taken away and stoned to death. Dire warnings follow. If the people fail to honour God's laws, they will not just have their privileges taken away, they are told, they will be forced to eat the flesh of their own children. All that is next. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chas Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Please send any comments or feedback to contact at holybible.com.